Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 95th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. Or will we? (laughs) Yes. So it's this year. We're talking about the films of 2022. We want to say up top that we are recording both of our 2022 episodes prior to the Academy Awards happening. So there will come a point where, I don't know, I think this first episode might still come out before them. I'm not sure. But our second episode definitely won't. So if you listen to our second episode and are like, we know what won. Well, we don't. We don't. We're here from the past. It's going to be a surprise to us. So in this episode, at least, we're not finding out if the Oscars got it wrong. We're just telling you what we think about everything. And Mm -hmm. then history will decide. Indeed. We will do our usual overview of what happened in the year. You probably don't need a lot of reminding since it just happened. But we were a little surprised to find how many things happened in this year. Stuff that felt like it was a long time ago at this point. (laughs) As we all know, time has become constricted and stretched in weird ways over the last few years. So, you know. Yep. In domestic news, this was the year that Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. Fuck. Pretty bad. Not worried about that at all. Also, in 2022, were the United States midterm elections, where a red wave was predicted, but did not happen. But they did win enough seats to take over the House, meaning Joe Biden's pretty much done doing anything this term. Democrats will not be doing any more legislating. Not for at least two years. In good news, one of Joe's accomplishments, he did manage to appoint a Supreme Court justice, which can be yeah. harder than you think it might be for Shockingly a Shockingly difficult. Yep. And he appointed Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Finally. Good job, Joe. Pretty cool. Okay, so to move on to international news, the Ukraine war began this year. Russia invaded them sort of towards the beginning of 2022. That was one where you were shocked that it happened I was. in 2022. I was I was surprised. God. It feels like awful. that's been going on for a long time. It's really awful. Yeah. Also this year protests sprung up in Iran which were felt all over the world through various events. Even during the World Cup and stuff there was Iranian protest Affecting everything. Very interesting. Yes. In British political news. Funnier political news. (laughs) It's true. Boris Johnson resigns this year due to a number of scandals, really. And he is replaced by Liz Truss, who lasts an astounding 44 days as prime minister. (laughs) No time at all. And then also tied up in this, I I guess it's hard to say this is hilarious because it involves a dead person, but the queen died Two days after Liz Truss was elected. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) (laughs) But she, I mean, within her 44 days, she did get to be the last prime minister to meet Queen Elizabeth. So yeah, it's a lot of interesting trivia. It was one more prime minister to add to Queen Elizabeth's tally, too, which I'm sure was like the most prime ministers any monarch has ever ever met definitely also in sad news shinzo abe was assassinated this year that was really wild i did not no one expected that to be coming out of japan no totally wild in health news here in the united states it's mostly bad 
We mm-hmm. recorded our millionth COVID death in 2022. Yeah. The pandemic rages on. And just when you were getting tired of COVID, another pandemic joins the scene. Yes. This was also the year of the monkeypox outbreak. Exactly. It's all going really well. In sports news, the 2022 Winter Olympics took place this year. That mm-hmm. was pretty fun. Nathan Chen crushed it. He had a oh. real comeback story this year. Exactly what we were all hoping for after his sad times four years ago. Yeah, 2018. But a little bit of controversy. He should have one more medal right now than he does, as should mm-hmm. many other people. Mm-hmm. What's stopping this from happening? But they keep letting Russians compete and cheat. When will they learn their lesson? The Russians can't stop cheating at the Olympics. (laughs) They just can't stop. So it's been like a full year. We still don't have our medals. And if the Russians, they determine they they did cheat, the Canadians should get some medals too. Yeah, the Canadians finished in fourth place in the team competition with the figure skating. So they could be bumped up. Everybody in Canada is waiting to find out if they're going to win a medal. Come on, Maybe guys. someday. We also had a World Cup this year, one mired in controversy, as they often are. This one a little bit worse than usual. <sighs> Why? Why? Why, FIFA, did you select this location? Yeah. But yeah. Argentina finally did win. Messi gets his his trophy. Mm-hmm. In NASA news, there was- oh, this a- is fun. NASA news is almost always fun news. Yes. NASA news, pretty much always good. The James Webb Space Telescope- We got our first images from this year. Beautiful. Uh, Yep. In less good science and tech news, Elon Musk (sighs) bought Twitter this year. That's that's bad for society. Oh, my God. He's absolutely the worst. But we'll see what happens. (laughs) And then big milestone passed for the world this year. The world population reached 8 billion. Man, that's a lot of people. I I think it's too many. I think it's too many, too. I mean, I don't want to wish for the deaths of all these people, but, like, it's a lot. some of them got to die. It's too many people. It's too many people. <laughs> we can't have this many. So that's the year. Wild times in 2022, as they always are. Things keep happening. They never stop. History just never ends. The box office. The top five highest grossing movies of the year, if you don't remember, are Avatar The Way of Water. Top Gun Maverick, Jurassic World Dominion, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and Minions, The Rise of Gru. Looking at it, I'm realizing that Doctor Strange should have been called Doctor Strange colon the Multiverse of Madness, and then everything would have matched perfectly. Oh, yeah. All the restaurants <laughs> do have colons. That's a that's a miss on, on the MCU's part. They didn't get the memo. Okay, so that brings us to our bracket. As always, the way that we do this is we look at the film's Rotten Tomato scores and we use that to seed the movies. If there is a a tie in terms of the score, we use the number of views to to tie break, but I don't think we had any of those this year. And then we, you know, pit the number one seed against the number 10 seed, pick a winner. We'll discuss the losers this episode and the winners next episode. What we're going to do is we're going to go through each nomination both declare what we think should have won. If we disagree, we have to come to consensus before we can mm-hmm. move on. So yeah, that's what we do. Should we dive right in to yes. the nominees? Our one seed this year was The Banshees of Inisherin, a drama about a pair of friends who have a falling out on an island off the coast of Ireland during the Irish Civil War. 
It stars Brendan Gleeson, Colin Farrell, Carrie Condon, and Barry Keoghan. Directed and written by Martin McDonough. It was nominated for nine. We don't know how many it won, but its nominations are for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Colin Farrell, Best Supporting Actor, Brendan Gleeson, Best Supporting Actor, Barry Keoghan, Best Supporting Actress, Carrie Condon, Best Original Screenplay, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. That's up against our number 10 seed, Triangle of Sadness, a comedy about a bunch of rich people on a yacht who get stranded on an island. It stars Harris Dickinson, Charles B. Dean, and Dolly DeLeon. It's directed and written by Ruben Ostland. It's nominated for three, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. Mm-hmm. All right, our winner, on the count of three, or the opposite of that, yes. three, two, two one. one. The, the Banshees, Banshees of Sharon. Great. Yeah. Okay. Our next matchup is the number two seed, Top Gun Maverick, an action film about Navy pilots training to blow up an enemy target. It stars Tom Cruise, Miles Teller, Glenn Powell, and Jennifer Connelly. It was directed by Joseph Kaczynski and written by Aaron Kruger, Eric Warren Singer, and Chris McQuarrie. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Song, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Visual Effects. That's up against our number nine seed, Elvis, a biopic about Elvis. It stars Austin Butler and Tom Hanks. It was directed by Boz Lerman. It was written by Boz Lerman, Sam Brommel, Craig Pierce, and Jeremy Donner. It's nominated for eight Best Picture, Best Actor, Austin Butler, Best Sound, Best Production Design, Best Cinematography, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Costume Design, and Best Film Editing. All right. Three, two, two one. one. Top Gun Maverick. Okay. Ooh, a disagreement. This is an interesting matchup. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. We never try to get into too much here. Yes. I'll say I don't love either of these movies. Same. But I did end up finding myself more interested in the characters and like journey of Elvis than I did Top Gun. I don't think that there's really anything going on with the characters in Top Gun. And while Elvis is wild in typical Baz Luhrmann fashion. By the end, I was I was emotionally affected. So okay. that's why I picked Elvis. I also don't particularly love either of these movies. I think I decided to go with Top Gun Maverick because as much as I was not enthralled by the plane sequences, I guess it's impressive. I mean, fair enough. If you found Elvis to be emotionally affecting, I'm fine to, to go with that one. I think that bears weight. Okay. We'll put Elvis through. Elvis it is. All right. Our number three seed, Everything Everywhere All at Once, a sci-fi action dramedy about a Chinese-American family that owns a laundromat. It stars Michelle Yeoh, Kiwi Kwan, Stephanie Su, and Jamie Lee Curtis. It was directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, the Daniels, and written by them as well. It was nominated for 11 Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Michelle Yeoh, Best Supporting Actor, Ki Hui Kwan. Best Supporting Actress, Jamie Lee Curtis. Best Supporting Actress, Stephanie Su. Best Original Screenplay. Best Original Score. Best Original Song. Best Costume Design. And Best Film Editing. 
That's up against our number eight seed, Avatar The Way of Water, an action film about aliens who must repel humans from their planet. It stars Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, and Stephen Lang. It was directed by James Cameron, written by James Cameron, Rick Jaffa, and Amanda Silver. It's nominated for four Best Picture, Best Sound, Best Production Design, and Best Visual Effects. Mm-hmm. Three, Three, two, two one. one. Everything Avatar The everywhere. Way of Water. I'm fucking with you. You're it's everything ever all at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's everything ever all at once. What if we'd both made the same joke and then been like, oh, it's Avatar, I guess? <laughs> no, we're not locked in. No. <laughs> okay. Our next matchup is number four, All Quiet on the Western Front, an adaptation of a 1928 book about soldiers in World War I. It stars Felix Kammerer, Albrecht Schuch, and Daniel Bruhl. It was directed by Ed Berger and written by Ed Berger, Ian Stokel, and Leslie Patterson. It was nominated for nine Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best International Feature Film, Best Original Score, Best Sound, Best Production Design, Best Cinematography, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, and Best Visual Effects. That's up against our number seven seed, Women Talking, a drama about a group of Mennonite women discussing what to do following a discovery that the men of the colony have been sexually abusing them. It stars Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, and Jesse Buckley. It was written and directed by Sarah Polly. And it was nominated for two, Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. Three, Three, two, two, one. All All quiet quiet on the the Western 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 Okay, Okay, yeah. I will say this will come up. I was torn. I loved both of these movies. All right. Very good. Okay. And finally, our matchup is number five, The Fablemans, a semi-autobiographical film about Steven Spielberg's childhood. It stars Gabriel LaBelle, Paul Dano. Michelle Williams, Seth Rogen, and Judd Hirsch, directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner. It was nominated for seven. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Michelle Williams, Best Supporting Actor, Judd Hirsch, Best Original Screenplay, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design. That's up against our number six seed, Tar, a drama about the conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra who runs up against Me Too allegations. Stars Kate Blanchett and Nina Haas. It's directed and written by Todd Field. Nominated for six. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Kate Blanchett. Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing. All right. Three, Three two, two, one. The Fablemans. Yay. <laughs> okay. We have our losers. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. So, I don't know what order we want to do these in, top to bottom. Start yeah, let's just go top to bottom. Start with Triangle of Sadness. Okay, so what's it about? Triangle of Sadness is sort of, it's interesting. A number of these movies are in chapters this year. So, this movie starts off with a couple of models, a male model who seems to be on the decline. He's having a hard time getting work. <laughs> And his girlfriend, who is a very successful female model, they go out to dinner, they have an argument about who's going to pay and sort of gender roles that 
doesn't really end up, well, I guess it does resolve. So they decide that they're going to stay together. They end up getting a free trip on this luxury yacht because she, in addition to being a professional model, makes money off her Instagram. So they're going to, you know, do it for the gram and Mm -hmm. then they don't have to pay. And they're on this luxury yacht with a bunch of other super wealthy people. You've got arms dealers, you've got Russian oligarchs, you know, it's it's everyone you would expect on a, a luxury yacht. Exactly. Off the coast of Africa, maybe? It's a little unclear exactly where they are. And all kinds of stuff is happening. At one point, one of the wealthy women decides to make the entire crew go for a swim instead of making dinner, which results in everyone getting horrible food poisoning. Also (laughs) during a really rough storm at sea. Everyone's super distracted by this. And a bunch of pirates come and are able to sort of blow up parts of the ship. So a portion of the crew gets shipwrecked on this island. A number of the rich people, the woman who seems to be in charge of the staff on the ship, one of the the women who is in charge of cleaning the toilets on the ship. And the woman who's in charge of cleaning the toilets is the only one who has survival skills. And so the hierarchy of power really shifts on the island to this woman who was at the bottom of the totem pole is now in control. And that sort of plays out over the third section of the film. Come to find out the island they have landed on is not, in fact, deserted. It is also the location of a luxury resort. Just no one decided to look to see if the island they were on was deserted. And in the end, this is discovered by the woman who is now in charge and the female model. They've been having a tug of war over the male model boyfriend. And it seems like the lady who's in charge now may kill the female model to keep it a secret that they are on this luxury resort island to maintain her position of power. Yeah. That's kind of what's happening. How'd you feel about Triangle of Sadness? Huh. Well, there were parts of it that I really liked. Mm-hmm. There's some fun moments, some really good specific jokes. The structure was kind of interesting, but I didn't know that it ended up working for me emotionally. Like, mostly I think my reaction to this is I found it unsubtle. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite stuff about it, weirdly, was the first act with the couple having the argument about the check, which I found really interesting and the specific ways that they spoke to each other and the way that it all played out. I was like, this is a pretty interesting debate that they're having. And then you get to the boat and the boat is fun. The boat has some great joke sequences. I mean, Woody Harrelson's on the boat and Woody Harrelson is great. He's always great. The moments are good. That moment of the staff pumping themselves up at the front and talking about how it's all worth getting shit on in case they get a big tip and they're like chanting about their tip. And then you go down and see all of the people who work in the kitchen and the maids and stuff who are never going to get a big tip listening to them doing their chant. That part was interesting. And the woman making them all go swimming is bizarre in this interesting way. I didn't love the post-marooning stuff. That's when I felt like it was the most just sort of hitting you on the head with Mm -hmm. what they were trying to do. I didn't find its critique to be really new or interesting. The fact that as soon as the woman who is a like cleans the toilets gets her power, she immediately uses it to coerce sexual favors out of someone was like, okay, like... I get it. There's not a lot of subtlety to what is going on in these later scenes. So I just, I felt it was a little uneven. There was stuff I liked, but I didn't leave it thinking like, oh, what an amazing critique of social classes. Yeah. What do you think? I felt similarly. There were like individual scenes and set pieces that I liked. I mean, once they get food poisoning, it's wild. That's It's a good scene. (laughs) That scene itself is great. There's the the element of all the wealthy people just vomiting and, and... 
shitting their brains out. I and mean, then the it's- one woman like rolling around in her bathroom. Yeah. As the- <laughs> it's so <laughs> gross. And it's falling. It's disgusting. But that's played under this sort of debate between the Russian oligarch and Woody Harrelson while they're reading quotes back and forth to each other, which yeah. is also not particularly subtle, but it is kind no. of fun. It's just the chaos of it is it's fun. It's fun, but again, not subtle. Yeah. Yeah. I think once they get to the island, it feels like there's opportunities to do more. And I think in particular, right, one of the characters who ends up on the island is this black guy who's maybe a pirate and is maybe an engineer on the ship. And you're like, okay, so they're going to add complexity to this idea of, okay, the rich are like this, the poor are like this, with this either pirate or professional, whatever he truly Mm -hmm. is. And they don't. He He's there for a little bit of an overt, like, you're bringing up race. I'm not bringing up race. You're bringing up race. And then he ceases to be a character altogether. It's such a waste. And yep. similarly, there's a woman who's had a stroke. And again, you're like, okay, this is an opportunity to talk about how this affects the disabled, right? We're going to do something with her. But she really just exists so there can be a part in the movie where the the director reveals to us that they're on an inhabited island and she can't communicate that not to say anything meaningful and i just think about snowpiercer where like everyone's casting is so meaningful it is meaningful that at the end the kids who survive are an asian girl and a black boy Mm -hmm. it's meaningful who's white in that movie and this movie is missing most if not all of that i also thought like I don't know. How how early in the film did you call that the island was inhabited? Because I was like, this island is inhabited. Why is no yeah, one searching? Early. Nobody even thinks about looking. And and there's – it just – all the turns are so obvious. As soon as it turns out that she's the only one with any skills, which is not a surprise at all. Sure. Then it immediately is like, okay, well, now this is a dictatorship and I'm going to do to you what you did to me. And there's never even a time when anyone thinks about like – she could teach you her skills and then everyone could share the responsibility. Right. Like, <laughs> like no one else can learn how to make a fire by watching her. It's just, yeah, everything that happens, you're like, okay, that's the obvious thing. Yeah. yeah. The acts got less interesting as it went along, <laughs> which is a shame. Yeah. And I just, I, the fact that no one used their day to explore the island was like, what are you guys Especially doing? Especially since they aren't fucking doing anything because yeah. the woman in charge is the only one doing anything. And you're like, first of all, teach them to make the fire. Then you don't have to fucking do it. Teach them to do this. Like, right. I don't, I don't know. It, I feel like learning how to fish by hand is probably really hard, but I do yes. feel like you could pretty quickly train people how to make a fire. Yeah. And to cook the food and to gather whatever you need to gather. Like there's a ton of stuff they could learn how to do. And I get that the idea is in a capitalism, it's useful to hold on to your skills and not give them to anyone for free. But it breaks down in the reality of the situation. Yeah, you have to think about the reality of the situation in a way where it's like they would at least try, right? They would try to work together and then maybe it would fall apart in an interesting way and maybe their biases wouldn't be gone in, in a subtle, interesting way. But instead it was just like, I have skills. I own you. <laughs> You're like, what the fuck is this? Like, It's not productive. This is not how people would act in a situ- yes. in an emergency situation like this. And then the other thing was, yeah, the second that she and the female model went off together, I was like, oh, one of these ladies is going to kill the yeah. other one. Yep. So that's pretty obvious. Out. Do you think she killed her at the end? I just think she could have, but it's too fucking late. It's over for you. It doesn't matter if you kill her. There's probably a fucking camera on the beach of that. You Like you've shown up at a resort. Mm-hmm. They're watching you. They know yeah. you're there. <laughs> it's over for you. <laughs> I don't understand how you think this can be saved at this point. No. 
I it's no snow piercer. It's no snow piercer. It's no parasite. I really can't wait until we do parasite year. I mean, Bong Joon Ho, he's a master. The man's a genius. But yeah, it's like a light poking fun at class differences more than a sharp satire nuanced commentary yeah yeah so it had some fun moments and yeah i think the scene that stuck with people when this premiered at film festivals the thing everyone talked about was the scene with the throwing up and that scene is the best scene of the movie yeah yeah okay i don't have a lot more to say about triangle of sadness it was fine there it's fine that brings us to our next film, which I believe, oh, is Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick. What a movie. <laughs> what happens in Top Gun Maverick, Maddie? Top Gun Maverick is about Tom Cruise. If you've seen the original Top Gun, his name is Maverick, his call mm-hmm. sign. At the beginning of this movie, he is somehow still in the Navy, even though he should have been court-martialed, kicked out something between the last movie and this one because he continues to be a maverick he doesn't listen to the rules the beginning of it he's working on this special project where they're creating a plane that could go you know faster than any other plane mock a million and he disobeys direct orders to shut down the trial so that he can go do it and prove that he can go faster than anyone else even though he's 50 something years old and his body really shouldn't be able to handle that anymore anyway cut to There's an enemy. This unnamed enemy has a weapon thing. (laughs) They cannot be allowed to let said weapon thing come online. So we need a special group of the best pilots in the world to run the most dangerous attack sequence that has ever been run that it also happens to be exactly the same as (laughs) the blowing up of this Death Star in Star Wars. Yes. And so we need someone to train them. And so they bring him in. The main conflict of it is Goose, his partner from the first movie who dies in that one. His son is now a Navy pilot. And there's some sort of tension between the two of them. And the son is one of these pilots coming to be trained. So we meet this group of young hotshot new pilots that are all sort of exactly the same as the hotshot pilots from the first movie. The mission's impossible. Nobody can do it. He needs them to go as faster than possible through this tiny little channel where they all keep running into walls. They can't do it. They can't do it. He's trying to build them as a unit. He's trying to make them better than they are. All along, he's basically like, I'm the only one who can do it is the implication. Mm -hmm. And so he ends up getting in trouble. He's going to get kicked off the mission. But right before they can kick him off, he runs it himself to prove that it can be done. And of course, he can do it. For no reason at all. Physics don't apply to Maverick. And so he's the best. He's the best who ever was. And all of these pilots that are 30 years younger than him and are the best in the world couldn't touch him for skill. And so, anyway, he proves it can be done. And then, without any further training of the kids, just the knowledge that it can be done, they've had to move up the mission. So now they're going to do it. And Maverick is going to be flying in it, even though. John Hamm, who's the boss, didn't want that to happen. And so Maverick chooses his team. They do the mission. It works. But then on their way out of doing the mission, enemy forces (laughs) show up and are going to shoot them down. They're about to kill Miles Teller. So Tom Cruise jumps in the way and gets shot himself. He goes down. Miles Teller can't let that happen. So he turns around, goes back for him. Then the two of them work together and go find 
these old planes that are the exact planes that Tom Cruise used to fly in the 80s in <laughs> the original Top Gun. And so they take one of these really old planes and they escape. And there are these next gen fighters that for some reason America doesn't have, even though that doesn't make any sense. And they show up and they blow up one of them and then they're about to get killed themselves. And then Glenn Powell shows up and saves them. And then they have the exact same scene from the end of the first one where Miles Teller and Glenn Powell are basically like, you can have my back and I'll have yours and blah, blah, blah. But really, the whole movie is about how no one is as good as Maverick and no one ever will be. That's Top yeah. Gun. Maverick. <laughs> yep, it's Top Gun Maverick. So yeah, I, I didn't love this movie. I find Maverick deeply unlikable. Same. And... In the first movie, he doesn't have a character arc. And then we jump forward 30 years and he's the same exact person he was at the end of the first movie where he didn't have a character arc. And then he just continues to not have a character arc. And it's like, why why are we watching this guy? He's not changing or growing. Because he's so cool, I Kelsey. Guess he's just so cool. I mean, it's frustrating, right? You've said this to me before. I 100% agree with it. Ideally, rebooting this series, they would give all the attention to the young kids. The idea should be to reboot a franchise so that you can move on and have movies that are about new characters. That's normally how reboots work. And all the kids are great. Miles Teller has great chemistry with Glenn Powell. Honestly, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is is once they've gone down in enemy territory. I think he has great chemistry with Tom Cruise, but he doesn't have a ton of actual scenes to to do with him because we're so focused on Tom Cruise and yeah. like his life. Then you know you learn that they cut Manny Jacinto from the movie, and it's like we can't have space for Manny. He shows up in the background of one scene, and you're like, oh my god, Manny Jacinto was supposed to be in this. So yeah, it just it feels like a mistake. It feels like a missed opportunity. And, you know, I do think Miles Teller could have carried it. I believe in him. But they yeah, decided to focus on Tom Cruise. It just feels like the decision has been made that this movie will only exist with Tom Cruise in it. If they make yeah. more, they will be about Tom Cruise. There is never a time when this movie will not be about Tom Cruise. Yeah. Which, all right. That being said, I did find the scene between him and Val Kilmer... It's so good. Val Kilmer's great. It's really good. I will say because you're not going to say it. I think the flying scenes are cool as hell. I think the by far the greatest thing about this movie are the flying scenes. They're technically awesome. They feel really real. Everyone's heard to death at this point. They were really in the planes. All the actors were really in the planes. And I do feel like it shows. It looks real. It looks awesome. They're compelling scenes. If you're interested in action flying scenes... They will work for you. They're very good. Yes. I didn't love them as much. But hey, I was going to put this movie through on the strength of them. So I can acknowledge that mm-hmm. they are a technical achievement, even if I think it's like it's like watching a boat because everything's in the sky. There's no scale. And so I can't see how fast they're going. And so something Fair. about my brain is just like, I don't know. I guess they're they going could be fast. stationary for all I know. <laughs> Hey, that's a problem with my brain. They did bring back the beach volleyball scene. That mm. could have been an even greater mistake if they did not have a sweaty sports beach scene. Yes. So, and I think they did it justice. The yeah. beach football scene was quite good, even though they added more wet jeans this time, <laughs> which made me really angry. Maddie hates wet jeans. <laughs> it's so it uncomfortable. Just watching people in wet jeans makes me feel like I'm wearing wet jeans. And can you imagine a worse feeling than that? It's horrible. Sandy wet jeans? No, thank you. (laughs) Seems chafy. 
I think that Tom Cruise has a secret insecurity about his legs and won't wear shorts. I think that is the root of this. Sure, but he could wear sweatpants. Yes, that would be way better. I don't know. Or linen pants. Ooh, linen pants. (laughs) Options. Yeah, so I don't know. That's not for me. People clearly loved it. Yeah, I was a little bit fascinated by how everybody loved this movie. Yeah, I think it has some good parts. I just think... I mean, this is really a thing that I encounter a lot, and we will be talking about again with our next movie. (laughs) But this thing where I guess what everyone values in a movie is very different from what everyone else values in a movie, right? There are subjective experiences. It's art. You can't impose what you think about movies on what other people think about movies. I just often find it to be the case that I watch a movie and something about the plot and the characters really doesn't work for me. And then even if everything else about it is very cool, I'm like... How is everyone loving this movie? The characters are dumb. The dialogue's dumb. The writing's not good. And then other people will just be like, but look at it. And you're like, yeah, I looked at it. It looked cool. But what about the parts that make it a movie? (laughs) Yeah, if it were a painting, I'd be like, nice. Yeah. So I don't know. I've just found that to be the case on many occasions where everybody's like, this is the greatest movie of the year. And I'm like, it, it looked cool. But did the story really work for you? There's so much untapped potential to the story, right? Tom Cruise's character having this sort of surrogate father relationship with Miles Teller and the falling out that they've had. And what they don't even lean into is the very obvious subtext of it where, like, he didn't let Miles Teller get into school or whatever is the is the root of their conflict because he mm-hmm. didn't think he was ready. But the underlying context of it is... I lost my best friend doing this. You're the son of my best friend. I think of you as a son type figure and it's very dangerous for you to fly these planes. I don't want you to fly them because you could also die, right? Is the sort of transference of it and what you would expect to be happening. That is what you would think. But that's not what they say at all. Basically, they contend Tom Cruise just never thought he was a good enough pilot. And so that's the whole story. And you're like, that's not an emotional arc. (laughs) No, he doesn't have an arc. There's no arcs. Give us arcs. No arcs. Yeah. Only planes. Um, no arcs, only planes. But America loves planes. They do. And America apparently doesn't care about arcs. Not really. All right. Does that bring us to our next film? Yes. Avatar, The Way of Water. Oh, my God. Do I have to do this one? Yes, you do. Okay. Good great. luck. <laughs> okay. So Avatar, The Way of Water is a sequel to Avatar. Yeah, just Avatar. Avatar. Right? Just Avatar. It's, I don't know, like 20 years in the future from Avatar, some amount of time in the future from Avatar. That makes sense. They have teenage children. And so we're following our same main character, Jake Sully, who's now permanently in a modified Navi body. He's married to Neytiri, who is an actual Navi, and they have three children, as well as an adopted child who is born from the dead avatar body of <laughs> some corny weavers human scientists from the first one <laughs> she sure is and so the military comes back to pandora led by stephen lang who had been the lead military guy in the first one they downloaded all of his memories and then uploaded all of his memories and the memories of his whole team into new avatar bodies and so they're back baby they're back for vengeance 
Mm-hmm. And also on the planet is this little baby human spider, because apparently you can't stick a little baby in cryo, which I don't understand that, but whatever. It's neither here nor there. They really treat it like you should know that, though, because later <laughs> he's like, you can't stick a baby in cryo, dumbass. dumbass. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> Why? <laughs> like, why, though? It messes with their growth plates. <laughs> um, did you ever see that movie from the 90s where it's Harlan Williams and they go to Mars and they all have little cryo stations, but they also have a chimp with them and the chimp gets in his cryo station, but he can't fit in the chimp's cryo station, so he's awake for the entire trip. Oh, and he no. eats all of their food. I have not seen that. That sounds hilarious. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> neither here nor there. He's still there, and it's revealed pretty early on, or I'm not even sure it's a reveal, that he's Stephen Lang human's biological kid. And so anyway, they're back for vengeance. With the military back, the Navi have been blowing up their infrastructure to try to get them to leave again, led by Jake Sully. And they go after Jake Sully's kids, and he's like, the only way to stop them from hurting our people is to leave and we have to go take refuge with the water tribe. I don't really follow his reasoning. I I need to stop doing commentary. Anyway, so they go to the water tribe. And at first the water tribe is like, you don't belong here. And then they're like, well, it's okay. You can stay because you're Jake Sully. You're the best, you know? Yeah. And so then a portion of the movie is them learning how to live like the water tribe people and integrate into their community. And at first the water tribe kids are real mean to the forest kids because they're like, you guys are weird. You have little tails. You can't even (laughs) swim or hold your breath. Yeah. And dorks. And, you know, they learn to swim and ride their little animal friends. (laughs) And one of the sons is sort of the black sheep of the family, and he befriends this black sheep whale that he's not supposed to befriend. He's an outcast. He's an outcast. And then the adopted daughter ties into the mother tree and has a seizure. And so they decide to call their scientist friends to come check her out. And it doesn't work. And so they just use the indigenous medicine to help her out. But oh, no, because they've done that. Now Stephen Lang knows that they're hanging out with the water tribe people. And so then the army comes and they're searching for the water tribe people and they hook up with these whalers. And it turns out that much like unobtainium from the first movie, there's a new natural resource that is worth tons of money. And it is basically like ambergris, right? It's the secretions of the whale. And it... Uh, stops human aging so yeah they hook up with these whalers they're gonna kill one of these whales to draw out the sullies because they know that it'll really upset the the water tribe people and they do that and everyone gets real mad and then they have a big battle and then they defeat the soldiers again and Stephen lang retreats to fight another day yeah why can't they kill him again that's what I, okay always- so now before we get into our thoughts yeah. that's what i think should happen i think every movie should end with them killing Stephen lang and then he's recorded his memories up until the day he dies and then every movie starts with Stephen lang re-uploading his old memories into a new navi body what if slight adaptation to that yeah he never gets to re download or upload or whatever his memories so he always starts again as the dead Stephen Lang from the first movie he has to relearn everything that has happened in the previous movies I don't hate that (laughs) I don't hate that at all and then he has to re-go through his arc with his son over and over every time he's trying to make his son like him again (laughs) okay so how'd you feel about Avatar the way of water Maddie here's the thing 
I don't know if we've talked on this podcast before about this. I, and I believe you, was no fan of the original Avatar. It was, I guess, interesting to look at, but the story was lame. It was just a copy of Pocahontas wrapped up in a bunch of weird, creepy blue people. Wasn't into it. I felt like it was one of those movies where everyone had to watch it because it was this weird cultural phenomenon and everyone was like, oh my god, the 3D, blah, blah, blah. We all went and saw it. Mm -hmm. 2009. This is 14 years ago at this point. And we all saw it. Immediately, I thought, everybody fucking forgot this movie existed. Nobody cared about it. It didn't have any sort of lasting effect on culture or fandom or anything. Everyone was like, oh yeah, that was that one movie that he made. Cut to 13 years later. All of a sudden, we're being inflicted with Avatar again. I know that he plans to make four of these movies. There's supposed to be five Avatars. And so I come into this kind of just angry that it exists at all. I'm not sure why we're being forced to go through this. Why does society need more of these? I don't understand the point of it. I go to the movie. And I had heard from people, yeah, the plot's not good. The writing's not good. But like, it's so visually spectacular. I love all the parts about the world and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, that's sort of exactly what I expect, right? My expectations are at the floor. (laughs) So I go in to watch this movie and it met my expectations. I wasn't disappointed by it. The plot is dumb and not good. The character development is non-existent and all the characters are pretty annoying. I noticed, which I already told you for the first time, I find it very difficult to tell the Avatar creatures apart. More than Avi, I guess. They're not Avatars. Their blue faces are not different enough (laughs) from each other. For me to tell what's going on. Especially the children. The children, it's very difficult. The one child looks like Sigourney Weaver. So that was helpful. The sons, I never could tell the difference between the sons. I was putting together through context clues every time which one was which. I will say, and I don't think this is enough of a reason for the movie to exist, but I will say that the parts where they're just learning to ride whales and be friends with the water people were my favorite parts of the movie. (laughs) And the parts where it was like, the water's super cool. There's interesting new sea creatures that look neat. That part, I was like, all right, this is passable entertainment. And then the plot came back and I was like, oh, yeah, this is dumb. I mean, the whole issue with Sully deciding if we leave, everything will be fine. It doesn't make any sense because, first of all, all of the Na'vi want the sky people off of Earth, off of their planet or their Correct. moon or whatever the fuck, right? Yeah. So he may be leading this insurgency, but if he leaves, aren't they going to keep doing it? Is he the that only is, reason they're attacking the sky one people? One of my millions of questions is they are continuing to do insurgent acts, right? So why? I mean, they don't show us that they are, to be fair. I guess we have to assume that all of the actions of the Force Navi came to a complete halt. They were they were right. If they left, everything would stop, and then there would be no conflict between the Force Navi and the military people while they're gone. Which doesn't make any sense, no. because if they believe in the cause, it shouldn't affect their missions. And in which case, him leaving is a real fuck you to them, right? Because they could use his help. No, I don't think it makes any sense that he would leave and then that would in any way alter the military's relationship with the Forest Navi. It just protects his family. He's abandoned those people to whatever to die. happened to them. Yeah. Also, the fact that 
the way that the sky people act also doesn't make any sense because for some reason they've decided Jake Sully is their only enemy and all they need to do is kill Jake Sully, even after he has stopped being involved in any military actions against them. I I also couldn't follow that. It makes sense if this is just a revenge story for Mm -hmm. the Stephen Lang character specifically, if they've gone rogue, if they're their own little squad and they're just after revenge. But the fact that the whole military apparatus seems to be in line with them is confusing because it seems like they would keep working on the thing that they were doing, which is building maglevs or whatever. Uh And then, yeah, they could have their revenge mission. Well, or I would imagine there being a conflict between Lang and the military where the military sends in this group because they are the best ones to hunt Jake Sully because they know him. So Mm -hmm. they go in to get Jake Sully. They are unsuccessful. Jake Sully flees. Then Lang should be like, we got to chase after Jake Sully and the military should be like, you got to stop these people that are still attacking our maglevs or whatever the fuck. Stay there. Fight the forest people because they're the ones fighting us and forget about Jake Sully until he eventually is a problem for us again. Right. And yeah. Lang should be there like, I got to get Jake Sully. <laughs> You're saying like interesting layered conflict. Right. Yeah. This movie doesn't really do that. So. <laughs> That's not an Just. Option. Doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Not to me. Why the people do any of the things that they do. I also saw somebody writing about how fucked up it is that Jake Sully in the first movie, his whole thing is like finding out that the earth people and the colonizers are all bad and these like native group that they've come upon are actually good and the way that they interact with their land is good and he wants to take on all of their ways their ways and become one of them and he does and then the beginning of this movie is him being like we're sullies you gotta act like i (laughs) (laughs) you're like he hasn't really adopted their ways very much has he no it's interesting because this movie really isn't about them. It's about the kids. He and his wife don't learn anything about the water people's ways. We don't no. see them learning how to swim or ride the little water guys. And he's such a dick. This is a thing that always annoys me and you see it all the time. A military dad, like a dad who sees himself as the commanding officer of their family and all yeah. their kids have to call him sir. And there's this bullshit relationship between them. Like I really hated his relationships with his sons and then the wet fact that of course his relationship with his daughters was totally different because he treats the sons like his soldiers and the daughters like his lovely little yeah. princesses well this is one of this is one of the many questions I so one of the problems I have with Avatar is I watch it and I just have endless questions as I'm watching the movie both in terms mm-hmm. of the technology but also what has happened in the last 200 years the gender politics of this movie are so regressive yes <laughs> it's like what's going on Well, and also what I found really interesting was that the relationship between Jake and his kids was exactly the same as the relationship between the chief of the water people and his kids. Yeah. There's no different cultural differences between any of these people. It's all just this really specific paternalistic thing, even though isn't there supposed to be some sort of like feminine maternal something to what's going on with the, you know first earth, movie the, and the earth and the I, I don't whatever. remember. I mean I there often either. is with nature narratives but I, I yeah. can't quite remember. I just thought it was really interesting that this dad was the same one where they're like sons step it up. I'm gonna be really hard on you for no reason and it's gonna make you have all of these emotional problems. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like they're exactly the same person. Why? Yeah, I don't I don't under I don't understand what has happened to Earth society in the last 200 years. It seems to be exactly the same as earth society today which 
is possible. Feels odd, but potentially true. Yes. And then, like, I just run into a million questions with the actual world building. Why can the Avatar re- reproduce with the Navi? I don't understand it. And it it icks me out. And I also don't well, understand. We're going to talk the, about icks. I don't understand what the Avatars are. I understand that they grow the bodies. Mm-hmm. Do they not have brains at all? Or are they just completely artificial brains? Maybe they have brains, but they don't have any experiences. So once you put the memories or whatever of the other person in there, it totally takes over anything that would have been there in the first place. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But they're genetically modified, obviously, because they have the extra fingers. Yeah, the fingers. I don't like that they can reproduce with the Navi. I don't like what they look like. I don't like what it tells me about the people that have designed the characters yes. that this is what they look like. I find it very creepy. <laughs> yes. No, there I I've told you I've talked to you about this before, but there's a famous interview, I think in Playboy, Ugh. with James Cameron where he talks about the reason he gave them breasts is so that male viewers would find them attractive. And I'm like, why do oh, we want male viewers oh. to find them attractive? It makes They're me another species why is this other species just a blue human with a tail (laughs) how did this happen and why is it so creepy i don't want to be seeing so many women's bare butts with tails i i don't need it well also the thing is the fact that we walk upright and have these enormous babies is so disadvantageous that the that it would evolve again on a different planet is nonsensical (laughs) it's really dumb i had a professor in college who was like any engineer could design a better human if you want to be bipedal you'd be a kangaroo they have their hips are like splayed Mm -hmm. backwards Mm -hmm. so maybe if they were like kangaroo people i could buy into it that'd be fun (laughs) the other issue i have with the world building is everything is so pristine and that's Mm -hmm. not what nature is like there is no like gross fungus or diseases apparently no one's sickly there's not a single fat avatar or anavi they're all super skinny and you know they all look exactly the same which does make it hard to tell them apart no one's sick no one's disabled you know no one's short (laughs) they're not a little short (laughs) short no one's even like like freakishly tall no who's on the basketball team everyone The basketball team. Yeah, I don't know. I don't understand it. I, there doesn't seem to be any variation going on in their culture. And the fact that you look at it and it gives you the vibe that someone has designed this group of aliens to be sexual objects for humans is very gross. <laughs> I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. My other question is, so the military people who get re-uploaded into Navi, mm-hmm. they have tattoos. Did they get those after they got re-uploaded to match their human tattoos? Or did someone put them on the Navi before they gained consciousness so they would feel like more comfortable in their Navi? I think they might have put them on the Navi before they gained consciousness (laughs) so that they would match the original human. Okay, cool. (laughs) That is a question I had as well. (laughs) Oh, my God. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like part of the issue is... I understand that James Cameron is trying to tell an environmentalist, anti-colonialist story, right? There are parts of this where you're like, I get that this is his intention. 
mm-hmm. which is all good. <laughs> Great. Sure. Yeah. But other than that, I just feel like there's nothing new in it. There's nothing we're learning about these relationships. There's nothing that's going to teach anyone anything, change anyone's mind about this. It's just a way for him to feel good about making alien porn. (laughs) And what's fascinating to me about this one is he theoretically brought on two additional script writers. But somehow, like, again, the characters are just as bad. The dialogue is just and as bad. What were they bad doing? script writers. I don't really understand what happened. Because <laughs> it feels like a James Cameron script. Yeah. What did they do? Know. What did, what they, did they, do? they add? Unclear. The characters are just so one note. The arcs are almost non-existent. And then the plot the doesn't make any sense. The dialogue's bad, but James Cameron dialogue's never good. But the plot just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. So I don't understand. Here's another question. And I might have missed something. So in the last big battle, when they're going to try to attack the outcast whale that the kids are friends with, right? The kids are all together and then the the people are coming. Everyone goes out for the battle. Jake and and Tiri and then all of the the water people, right? Mm -hmm. And so they have their big battle. And then the daughter of the chief is still with the kids, right? But all of the water people have disappeared. Oh, you mean like once we get into the big battle stuff? Yeah, I don't know. Did they all die? They? <laughs> yeah, that's my question. <laughs> did they all die or did they they couldn't they couldn't have left because the daughter is still there. So you think like the mom you and dad would still want to get the daughter. Yeah. They just disappear. I was like, did I miss something? I don't think I fell asleep, but like, where did everyone go? Yeah, I don't know. It's very weird. They do disappear. I think the most effective emotional relationship and arc for me is the son and the whale that I becomes friends with. It's this nice story about this outcast whale who's outcast, not through any fault of his own, but because, you know, they're being hunted by these evil whalers and his mother got killed and all this traumatic stuff happened. Mm -hmm. And then he was around for the death of some Navi, but it wasn't his fault. But because of the way that they are so virulently anti-violence in their culture, because he was involved at all, he has to be an outcast. And it's very sad. And he's all alone. And the boy feels all alone, too, because he's the outcast of his family. And they bond. And it's nice. And he tries to get them to be friends with the whale. And no one will. And then the whale saves all their lives. <laughs> or maybe not if they all died. Well, it saves the lives of his the family. People. Yeah, that's true. Of the forest people. Because yeah. the water people don't even like him anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Here's what I'll say. Another thing that didn't make any sense. Uh-huh. So we've got these whalers who yeah. their whole job is to just hunt these whale things and get the money and blah, blah, blah. They don't have any stake in this crazy quest for Jake Sully, right? So they sure. get co-opted by the military guys who need a ship to ride around on and who uh-huh. need help navigating this place and these people that the whalers know a lot more about. And so at some point, all of the sudden... The whalers are okay with kidnapping children? Like, like first they're just a boat for these guys to be on. And then all of a sudden the military's like, you go out there and kidnap those children. And the whaler guys are like, sure, that sounds like a thing we should do. And I don't understand how that happened. <laughs> I guess he just threatened them that hard. But they did seem enthusiastic about it. Yeah, they were like, we're totally on board with this mission. Why? I don't know. Here's another question. Uh-huh. Why was Jemaine Clement American? This is my question. (laughs) Jemaine Clement is in this movie doing an American accent. Yeah. 
even though the other guy on the boat <laughs> is Australian, not American. <laughs> Maybe he just wanted to practice his American accent and James that Cameron was, was like, sure. The only thing I could think of was that Jermaine himself was like, I want to be American. And they were like, great, go for it. Yeah. Because it didn't, I didn't understand that at all. <laughs> Why he it was, was really American. weird. Seeing him also made me think, you know what these movies could use? Hmm. A consistent comic relief character. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Yep. But they didn't even really use him for humor. He was the only one no. there. He was there to be he just like, reminded the, me that like, yeah. oh, he could have been funny. He could have been funny. But instead, he was the heart of it because he's the only one on that boat who is not a monster. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they could use comic relief for sure. I don't make know. One of the, maybe one of the Navi like Aquafina or something. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a great idea. <laughs> I like that. I don't know. There are so many ways that it could be better than it is. Yeah. But instead, it's it's such a weird experience to watch this thing where you can see the effort that went into it. Sure. It is incredibly technically impressive you can see the labor the decade that he spent on this how perfect everything looks you can tell it looks exactly the way he wanted it to look in his mind the sweat and tears and time and blood and sleepless nights like it's all there on screen but it just he's put it all into a thing that doesn't feel worthy of that much time and effort i don't understand why 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 this thing why is this the thing you're devoting your life to I don't know. And I don't know how to fix it because he did bring in these other script writers and it didn't make it any better. And I don't know. That's it. just him exercising too much control still. Maybe if he mm-hmm. let other people do more of the Like writing. maybe if you, if he wasn't involved, if he was like, hire a couple of good writers to write the next Avatar script and then you'll see the draft when it's done. Yeah. You're not involved in the plot, <laughs> anything that's going on. Just let them write it and see what happens. Yeah. That could be interesting probably not gonna happen no so yeah this one not for us i think it's safe to say nope but if you are one of those people who will watch a movie and be like eh, the plot was bleh, but i loved the visuals this could be for you it really could be because <laughs> there is some pretty serious world building going on even though we are left with a hell of a lot of questions about said world why can't you put a baby in cryo I don't know. But you can't, dumbass. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No one knows that. I guess people in their world know that. Anyway, that's Avatar. Okay. Women talking, Maddie. What was women talking about? Women talking. So women talking, big tonal shift from the last one, is about... (laughs) Could not be more different. (laughs) Is about a, a group of Mennonite women have all been attacked by members of their community, but at the time they didn't know who. They've been drugged and raped in the night, and they've all been terrorized with this. And then at one point, they catch one of the guys in the act or running away or something like that. And this guy gives up a bunch of other names of the people Mm -hmm. who have supposedly been doing this. So that group of men have been arrested. They're in a neighboring town. The rest of the men from their town all leave to go bail out the guys that are in jail. And they're going to be gone for two days. And in these two days, the women are spending their time deciding what they want to do before the men come back. So their options as they see them are to just do nothing, pretend it didn't happen and move on, stay and fight or leave. All of them leave. And so 
it's all of these women in the community plus the one man in the film is Ben Wishaw, who is the teacher of the town. He was from there. He left for a while to go to university, and he has since come back. Well, his his mom left, and he went with him, I think, when he was a kid. Yes, his mom, I think, was cast out because she yeah. didn't really fit in with the society. He left. He has since come back, is the teacher, and they have kept him here to take the minutes of their meeting. And he also is in love with one of the women. So there's that storyline going on. And so the plot of it really is just, as the title says, women talking, them all laying out how they feel about this and what their arguments are. There are some women that want to stay and fight. They're really angry and would like to perhaps even physically harm all of the men that have done this to them. There are some women that want to leave and they're all in different situations. One of them is pregnant with the child of one of her rapists. One of them is in this really abusive relationship with her husband who abuses her and their kids. And it just is them sort of like laying out how they've all been affected, what they think the best thing to do is. And then over the course of it, they end up deciding the only thing that they can do is leave. There's a discussion about taking their children with them, like what age it would be appropriate for them to take the boys. When is it basically like too late for the boys? When can the boys still be trained to not be abusive? And so they end up taking the boys younger than 15, I think, with them. And they leave with the intention that someday, once they've set up in another place, maybe the good men could come and rejoin them. And then it's very sad because Ben Wishaw and the girl, they really love each other, but he has to stay and teach the boys and she has to go. And it's heartbreaking. I really like this movie. I found it, I mean, it's really well acted. I think the writing is good. The actors are fantastic. And it's an interesting little bottle movie where you could read it literally, but it's basically a metaphor, right? For women talking about society and rape culture. And is there a way to change it? What can we do? How can we act morally in this society? And how can we change it and all that sort of stuff? I found it super emotional. I cried through most of the movie. I liked their performances a lot. I don't know at the end that you necessarily come to a place where you're like, ah, yes, I know the answers now, but that's because I don't think that there are clean answers to this sort of conversation. And I just found it really worked for me emotionally. I liked the performances a lot and I liked it. What did you think of it? I appreciated this movie. I think the conversations are a microcosm of the conversations we have in society. It's clearly like the communist society. These are different Mm -hmm. arguments that you could have about how to deal with sexual violence in our world. And I think that's pretty clear. And I I do think the decision to leave is the movie giving its opinion on maybe a path forward. One of the reasons Ben Wishaw stays behind is like, you have to teach the boys, which I think is the movie saying like, this cannot be our role as women. It's not Mm -hmm. our responsibility to teach these men how to behave you guys got to figure, figure that yeah. out. I think the presence of Ben Wishaw in it is very interesting. The idea that they have this man who is witnessing the conversation and there's this tension the whole time between how much he can be a part of the conversation. Anytime he starts to say something, either one of them will be like, this isn't your place, or he'll be like, oh, that wasn't my place. And there's this mm-hmm. like the dynamic going on where... He has to be there because he exists, right? And men are real and you can't really have this conversation entirely without them. But navigating his place in it is really fascinating. 
Yeah, I did think his character was interesting. I think the movie makes a creative decision at the beginning that I think it's supposed to bring the viewer into the story, but I found distancing, which is they start with a voiceover that's saying, you didn't get to know, and the you is the unborn child. The unborn daughter, yeah. Of Rooney Mara. And everyone in this movie is white, and it is based on a true story in mm-hmm. a Mennonite community. But the movie also starts with this title crawl of like, this is an act of female imagination. And I, I just kind of wish this female imagination had expanded beyond white people if they wanted to have a universal conversation about sexual violence among women. I don't respond well to second <laughs> second person narratives Fair to begin enough. with. That's usually not my jam, but it did make me instantly aware of like, my family doesn't look like this. That's not my mother, right? And so I do think that was a little bit of a creative mistake. And I think similarly, probably because of that, I was like, it would be nice if you're going to have a conversation about how sexual violence affects women, not just say white women are representative of all mm-hmm. women. One thing that I I don't usually notice about movies or comment on, but did seem to affect a lot of people was the color grading of this film. Mm-hmm. I hated it. I found it super distracting. And really? And there's a bunch of people's reviews were like, I really hated the color grading of That's this movie. And I'm like, not a thing I usually comment on. The other thing that I was thinking about was everything is graded the same. So you have the interiors that are, it's very, very blue. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very desaturated. And I was like, it'd be good to have some levels. It'd be nice if the outdoor scenes were like a little bit more saturated and brighter. And I just thought that it would help to reinforce a couple of the themes in the movie. So at the end of the movie, they have Ben Wishall make a list of all the things that are good in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of nature. And I think also they have the conversation with Ben Wishall about can the boys be taught? At what age can they be taught? Which seems to indicate to me that their position is this is a nurture, not a nature issue. So Mm -hmm. to contrast that visually by having the fields be very green to make it also understandable about why these women might want to stay here, right? The beauty of the place that they're living in, I think would have been a stronger choice maybe. And the other thing that it made me think of, because this movie starts with a bunch of kids walking through the fields, particularly little girls, was the beginning of The Color Purple, where Mm -hmm. you see those two little girls running through the fields of flowers and it's beautiful and it's bright greens and purples and really, really saturated. And then at the end of the credits, you see the one girl leave the tall grasses and she's vastly, vastly pregnant. And it's shocking, right? And it's like, oh, that is sat in my head, in my heart, in my soul, in like the pit of my stomach since I saw that movie years ago. And I think there's just, there's no contrasts in this movie, at least visually. Mm-hmm. And I do think that undermines the impact of some of what's happening. I just think there's some visual choices that could have been made differently and again it's not like i'm you know me i'm not like hansa like the color grading of this movie (laughs) here comes kelsey again with her complaints about the color grading i I really i found it distracting but yeah i thought it was good i think it's a it's a solid movie i think it's saying important things just a couple of creative choices that i i might have done differently i guess if i were in charge if i were in charge yeah and then I also did tell you, I unfortunately did not have the best theater experience yeah, with this movie. <laughs> when Ben Wishaw confesses his love to Rooney Mara at the end, one of the women sitting in front of me went, aww. <laughs> 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 it's like, That's <right>. hilarious. <laughs> oh my god. You get what you're going to get at the theater. You never you know. really do. Well, that is interesting. I think that the... I mean... I can't speak to the color grading thing because it didn't affect me the way that it affected you. So I can't, you know, 
go back and imagine it, how it would have changed my experience. I think that your point about this being a movie about a bunch of white women is a good one. I don't know how you change it in this specific situation. <laughs> since, you well, that's know, what I'm saying, right? It is based yeah. on a true story. But the fact that it starts with a little title card that says this is an act of female uh, yeah. imagination. Hey, have your imagination stretch beyond white people. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. But yeah, that's a good point. The color grading thing I think is fascinating that you were not alone and everyone hated it so much. <laughs> I don't know that everyone hated it, but again, I don't read a ton of reviews that mention the color grading either. But like if you Google it, you can find people being like, why was why does this movie look like this? <laughs> it's bleak. It's a bleak I mean, conversation. I understand why it looks like it. Color I just grader. wish there was a little bit more variation. Make the fields green, man. I like a green field. I think it just works for me because you know how partial I am to a talky movie. I do. I mean, this could be a stage play. There's no talkier movie than this. It could easily be a stage stage play. play. Yeah. Which is part of why I wasn't sure if it was based on a book or a play, because it feels like a play. But I'm fairly certain it's a book. I don't know that there's anything else to say. It's a a little talky movie. It's very heavy. But you know what you're going to get. Yeah. Shall we talk about Tar? Let's talk about Tar. Oh, I'm doing Tar. Okay. You're doing Tar. Tar is about a lady composer and conductor. She's a composer and a conductor named Lydia Tar, played by Kate Blanchett, who is very, very accomplished. She's led a bunch of different orchestras and she's landed at the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, which I guess is the premier orchestra in the world. I don't really know, but seems like it. And the movie starts with her having an interview with someone from either the New York Times or the New Yorker or something. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) And then she goes and she teaches a class and a kid in the class is like, I don't like Bach because I'm so woke. And she's like, being woke is stupid. And so then she goes back to Berlin where she lives with her wife and their child. And she apparently has been using her position of power to have affairs with younger women, manipulate those women. One of the women she maybe was having an affair with, she has cut out of her life and has not only done that, but has tanked her career. Every time someone has asked for a recommendation or reference, she has said like, she's crazy, don't hire her. And so this woman can't get a job. She, it seemed like they'd been in sort of a three-way relationship with her current assistant too. It's a little, everything's a little unclear in this movie. And they're going to let the guy who's the assistant conductor go and the, the assistant thinks that she's got the job in the bag, but then that doesn't happen. And she ends up quitting as this whole thing with the girl who the girl that she was having an affair with ends up killing herself. So it starts to snowball. And somehow she also thinks that her deleting her emails on her end is going to get rid of the paper trail. Meanwhile, she's gotten eyes for a new cello player in the in the orchestra. I was going to say the band. I guess they're not a band. And the cello player is very Russian and doesn't seem to be particularly interested in Lydia at all. But she continues to pursue her. And basically, like, the Me Too allegations keep spiraling and spiraling. And the suicide thing gets out. And then everyone is Me Tooing her. And she's getting kicked out of all of her things. And she wants to do all of Mahler's pieces and record them. And she's got her last one going. And she gets let go before she can do it. So she comes back. And not to give away one of my thoughts about this movie, but she straight up whiplashes Mark Strong. (laughs) 
<laughs> and tackles him. And then at the end of the movie, she's, you know, fallen from grace. And all she's left to do is conduct a video game score in Asia somewhere. Oh, the worst fate a person could experience. And that's Tar. What are your thoughts about Tar? This is such an interesting one for me. I'll start by saying Kate Blanchett is excellent. Sure. Kate Blanchett is a great actress. There's a lot for her to do with this character. She's very convincing. She's very Kate Blanchett. She's probably going to win Best Actress, even though I think maybe Michelle Yeoh should, but that's a whole yeah. other conversation. Yeah. She's good. That, oh, great. We'll start there. The movie I find very confusing because, okay, it's one of those conversations about people in power using their positions of power for bad purposes. And there's a little bit of the conversation of does a genius get to be a monster like that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Do we accept bad behaviors from people that we consider to be great artists or great whatever at their craft? That's part of it. I find the first part of this movie, at least, to be too vague for me to understand how I'm supposed to feel about the second part of the movie. Like what she's actually done is a little bit in question, which I don't like. I would like to be more clear about what exactly is going on with her. And then I sent you this interesting piece about how the end of the movie takes a severe tonal turn. Things are proceeding normally. You're meeting this woman, you're seeing her life, everything's happening. And then there's a point in the movie when she's pursuing the new cello player where things get really heightened the storytelling gets really heightened it starts when she follows the girl into her apartment building and then it turns into like this sort of horror movie tone she's being pursued by something she's having to run out of this building and falling and hurting herself and it sort of is an interesting shift and this is Mm -hmm. the beginning of everything unraveling for her and then stuff starts to get really bad for her, I guess. Allegations come out. She starts to get in trouble for things. Things start to fall apart. The people that she used to have power over all of a sudden have power over her. And like the guy that she thought was so lame and was always begging her for help, then he gets to be dismissive of her. And it's the worst thing that's ever happened. And then she doesn't get to do her Mahler thing. And yeah, she attacks the guy on the stage in an incredibly heightened sequence where you're like, did that really just happen? Like, this is crazy. And then yeah, it all culminates in her not being able to get a a good job. Her fall from grace is her having to be a conductor in Asia for a video game song, which is the worst thing she could ever imagine. So there's a conversation about what, how we're supposed to read the end of this movie. It seems clear to me that you're not necessarily supposed to read the end of the movie literally, but I don't think that that means that it's clear how you are supposed to read it. There are people who talked about maybe it's, her nightmare version of the things that could happen to her. There were people who talked about maybe it's our fantasy version of the horrible things that could happen to her. Maybe it's a dream sequence. Maybe it's a this. Maybe it's a horror movie. Maybe it's a that. There are interesting freeze frames of seemingly the dead girl being in the background of the scenes. Is she a Mm. ghost? (laughs) There's like any number. There's a whole conversation about what the fuck is going on with this. And while I do think that's kind of interesting. I like for a movie to have some wiggle room in terms of what's going on in it. I don't find it clear what the movie is trying to say about Tar. I don't understand what it's saying about cancel culture, because to me, it feels very much in a dangerous space of, we never see how bad she really is. So maybe she wasn't that bad and doesn't deserve all these horrible things that happened to her. Like, that's a possible reading of it. If you're reading it as her nightmare scenario of what happens, are we supposed to feel like that's 
funny and ridiculous. Like if this is her nightmare scenario of the worst stuff that could happen to her, I think that's pretty funny. <laughs> like if, the, if her yeah. fall from grace is she still gets to be a conductor, but it's on music that she doesn't respect. That's a, a, an actually pretty biting commentary about cancel culture because people who are supposedly canceled are never really canceled. Sure. Louis C.K. is playing Madison Square Garden. <laughs> like, you know, so it is sort of interesting, but it feels so nebulous to me that I really struggle to understand what the point of the movie is. So that's my main issue with it. Mm-hmm. What did you think of it? Yeah, I had a lot of problems with it. I do want to start by telling a little story. So there's a female conductor who apparently Tar is most closely modeled after, whose mm-hmm. name I cannot remember, and I'm sorry for that. But she was the lead conductor of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Now, I've only been to the Symphony Orchestra once in my adult life, and that was to the BSO. And I'm not sure it was when she was leading it. And I'm not sure she led this performance. But ironically, I went as a birthday gift for my college roommate when we were living together in D.C. the summer I was interning there. Mm-hmm. And I bought her tickets to go see the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra perform the music of Final Fantasy, her favorite video game series. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love this story. <laughs> And we had a great time. We yeah. went with another one of my intern friends, Stephen, and it was lovely. But symphony orchestras perform all kinds of stuff now. And unfortunately, in recent years, the BSO has had a lot of financial trouble. So mm. it's a sad situation. But my overarching thought is Tar is the movie I was worried Whiplash was going to be. Tar yes. is Whiplash if Miles Teller's character does not exist. There's a person who commits suicide. Yep. There's a number of interesting parallels. And so, yeah, when she tackles Mark Strong on the stage and starts kicking him, I'm like, oh, shit, she's whiplashing him. What's going mm-hmm. on? <laughs> but it made me want to watch Whiplash. That was kind of my, my overarching I love feeling. It. Well, because when Whiplash, when that happens, you're like, yeah, like, this is amazing. <laughs> It's so crazy. But when it happens in Tar, you're like, wait, what? Like, yeah. <laughs> this does not feel she like the type of movie. She became Miles Teller. She was J.K. Simmons. And then she became, she can't be both. No, that doesn't make any sense. She needs to be one <laughs> and have a Miles Teller. Mm-hmm. We'll tackle her on stage after being in a car accident. <laughs> <laughs> I'd no, like but- to see Kate Blanchett get tackled <laughs> by Miles Teller. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Let's do it. Deep fake this shit. I don't know. <laughs> no, like as a take on cancel culture, it's very facile. I would love to dig into the scene with the BIPOC pan gender kid. Oh, Jesus my God. Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. I think as a character study, some people have been like, oh, it's just a character study. It's just about this kind of person. I don't think it's doing anything new. The thing that's new about it is she's a woman, but they code her so masculinely. It's basically irrelevant. That's the part I don't understand. What does it mean that she's a woman? What, what is the, why is she a woman and what is the point of it? That's, I don't understand it. Right. And again, I think it's an interesting but odd choice if your point is, oh, anyone can be corrupted by power. Why code her so masculine? Masculine. She refers to herself as her child's father at one point. Yes. Like she could not be coded more masculine. And then my other thought was like, is it so that she can... They wanted to make a change, but also still have a wife character who's slightly underdeveloped because it was like if she had a husband, it'd be a whole different dynamic, right? (laughs) I don't know. So I had seen that article you sent me about this movie before because as I was watching it, I kept being like, why are parts of this movie shot like a horror movie? Like, Mm -hmm. what is going on? Mm -hmm. I didn't notice the figures in the background because they're really quick, but there are definitely sequences that are like, now we're in a horror movie. Right. There's a scene where she's running through the park and she hears the screaming, which apparently is the screams from the Blair Witch Project. Oh, wow. 
And then there's this stuff with like the um, the metronome turning itself on yeah. and like that. Yeah. Stuff going missing. And I actually really like this idea because I've seen some other people talk about like cancel culture is this ghostly gothic presence in our lives, mm-hmm. this thing that hangs over people. And I think that's a cool idea, but I don't think the tone of the movie is consistent enough to sustain that terror. So it wasn't like it was building and I'm getting more and more freaked out as it goes along. It's just every once in a while, a scene is shot like a horror movie and you're like, that was weird. And then it just goes back to whatever it was before. So I think if someone could could do that, could maintain a, a gothic tone throughout build and then we really get to the crescendo, I think mm-hmm. that's a super cool idea. I just yeah. don't think this movie has done it successfully. So yeah, it's just, it leaves you with a lot of questions. And I think, you know, there's always this tension of like, people will be like, oh, the ambiguity allows space for interpretation. It's actually so deep. And it's like, is it, or is it just confused and empty? You didn't and... mind about what it was. Yeah. Can we talk about the scene with the BIPOC pan gender yes, kid? Please. So like, again, I understand that people say like, you can read this as a satire in a sense, but like all of the anti quote unquote woke stuff is text. And anything that you could glean from it that is woke is subtext. And I really think people are projecting their own understanding onto the movie. Mm -hmm. Because the conversation she has with this kid, it is so bad faith. They write her to be this brilliant woman who can form an argument. And then this kid is completely incapable of defending his position, which leaves me, the viewer, yelling at my TV about like, these are all the flaws in your argument. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Can someone in the scene make them? Yeah, because the scene plays out like she's teaching classical music to these people. They want to be conductors or composers yeah. or whatever. They've chosen their own pieces of music to do their conducting practice on. And this kid has chosen some sort of new piece by a female composer that's atonal and blah, blah, blah. Some like very experimental such and mm-hmm. such. And... So she there is like, okay, like, let's get to the root of why you're picking this music. And like, maybe this is a time when you're first learning to try to go with the classics and see if you can get something new out of these old things people are doing. Maybe try Bach. And then the kid is like, I guess, like, I'm not a big fan of Bach because I really am not that interested in what all of these old dead white guys have to say. Mm Because like, they're all dead white guys and they don't speak to my experience. And she's like, that's absurd. You can say what you like about all of these guys and what they were like, but you have to really listen to the music and then you'll understand why everyone has said that their work is so important and you could get so much out of it and blah, 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 blah. And so it leaves all of this space, like you're saying in the argument, where you're thinking in your head, like, but what about, and what about, (laughs) what about this? And what about that? And they're portraying the kid as just like, well, I don't like it because I don't like it and I'm young and woke and that's how I feel. Yeah. And there's no space in the argument for like, you, Tar, are just there to prop up the old system because it's the old system. There is room for some sort of debate about the inherent value of all of the old white guy composers that everyone has propped up throughout time and whether or not that's because they actually are the best ever or because that's what people had available to them because only old white guys could write music and so there's no nuance to the conversation it's just him being like well I don't like Bach and she's like well you should like Bach because everyone (laughs) says Bach is good (laughs) you're like And there are parts in the discussion where I wrote down some of the quotes, right? She says, now, of course, siloing what is acceptable or not acceptable is a basic construct of many, if not most, symphony orchestras today who see it as their imperial right to curate for the Cretans. Mm -hmm. Okay. Every institution silos what they think is acceptable, not acceptable. And in fact, 
the reason that these masters are the masters is because these institutions have been artificially siloing who could create music and who couldn't, yeah. right? It's not like they went through and were like, okay, we're going to listen to all the women and all the people of color and all the white guys. And oh, okay, all the and white guys. I hate to tell no. you, but objectively, all the white guys stuff is the best. <laughs> they have been curating for the Cretans the entire time. It's just normative. And this is the problem with all of these arguments. Is people see what has come before and said, that wasn't, that wasn't intentional. That wasn't an institution making choices. That's just normal. That's just neutral. And it's like, no, they've it's always been, been making neutral. choices. The choices have just been in favor of white people and white men the whole time. Yep. The choice has been to lock other people out. And so now, yep. in order to change it, you have to do it actively. You mm -hmm. have to do it actively. You can't do it passively. It's not going to fix itself passively. And right. so I'm yelling this at my TV, Same. and this kid is just shaking his leg and being like, mm, I don't know. And you're like, well, the why poor kid's are you like 18 like years old. And I know. There's this fucking person in a position of power yelling at him that he's an idiot. And you're like, what is he supposed to do? Right. But as, as a viewer, right, if you are partial to Tar's perspective, there's no mm -hmm. one to give the counter. So then what yep. is the film trying to convey exactly. about that? That's Todd? why I find it to be problematic that it's so unclear the nature of her crimes you could read in your own perspective what she has done as being really horrible but because we never really see what horrible thing she did and in her own mind she's innocent of all crimes and she's the only perspective that we're in there's a way to read this movie where you're like well it's just cancel culture run amok and it totally ruined her life and who knows what she did was so bad it probably was fine <laughs> and you're like the worst thing we've seen her do is try to ruin that girl's career right yeah but we don't actually see that it's because she wouldn't sleep with her or something right mm -hmm. there's a way to read it where it's like maybe she's a really bad employee and maybe Tara's kind of a rude person for making it so hard for her to get another job but who's to yeah. say it wasn't justified <laughs> right like i don't know how we're supposed to read this when as you said everything that is subtext is the potentially interesting incisive statement stuff and everything that is text is the opposite of that right i don't know do you think todd field doesn't understand how email works or like <laughs> yeah i'm not sure whose problem that is but someone's very confused because just because you delete some emails that you sent doesn't mean that they're not on google's server yeah. <laughs> or that if they are able to get into the girls electronics they won't still have all of those emails yep yep Someone doesn't understand. Yep, 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 yep. Emails. Anyway, Whiplash rules. Whiplash does rule. <laughs> oh, but yeah, Tar, meh. Yeah. All right. That's our losers. Mm hmm. Shall we talk about what the best of the worst and the worst of the worst were? Yes. I think the best of the worst for me is women talking. I agree with that. The worst of the worst is an interesting conversation. <laughs> I mean, probably just because I'm so mad that it exists at all. I'm going to say Avatar, The Way of Water. I mean, also, it was it was three hours and 12 minutes long. Oh, That's I long. forgot to say, to give it a full fair shake, because I read all those articles after I watched the movie. I did watch Tar twice. Dear God, really? Yeah. I watched it twice <laughs> in a couple of days because I rented it. So I had 48 hours. That yeah. movie's two hours and 38 minutes long. So people, I, she, I she tried. the effort. Wow. I tried, Okay. I didn't. I only watched it once. But yeah, I mean, Avatar The Way of Water is also th over three hours long. And that's mean. It's just, it just it's feels just mean. I'm fairly sure that James Cameron specifically hates me. And I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, I, I've said mean things about him in the past, to be fair. But he started it. 
He did start it. <laughs> okay. What are we talking about next time? We're continuing to talk about the 95th Academy Awards. We'll do our winners next time. Very exciting. Can't wait to get yeah. to all these winners. In the meantime, if you have thoughts about any of this, comments, questions, concerns, reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod, and our website is OscarsWrongPod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 